Thanks, brother. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, get those out and turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. I hope you've got your own copy of God's Word. If not, there's some black ESV copies under the pews or pull out an app and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 13 to 23 together. We're moving into week three of Advent, the Advent season. Uh, If you didn't know, Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means arrival. So the season of Advent is the time where we come together to, to look forward to and celebrate the arrival of God to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're moving into our third week this morning. I'm excited about it. To get your imaginations engaged a little bit, I'd love for you to just think for a moment about a time that your travel plans were thrown off. Think about a time that your travel plans were thrown off. Maybe you got stuck in traffic, you got there late. Maybe you got sick, you couldn't go. Maybe you missed a flight. Raise your hand if you've missed a flight. All the irresponsible people in the room, (laughs) right? Um, I was thinking about a time where my travel plans got thrown off and uh, it had to do with a flight. My family and the Hanley family were flying up to Maine for a week over the summer. And uh, we were poor. And so uh, we were trying to fly out of D.C., get cheaper flights. And so we had to drive up there. You know, you got to you got to get there a couple hours early for a big flight out of D.C. And so. Uh, we're, we're ready to go, and I'm, I'm known to be late. If I've ever been late to a meeting, uh, I'm sorry. I'm, it's something that I'm working on. Uh, but in this instance, I was like, I was prepared. I was ready to go. We were at the door. We had our stuff. We were ready to go. And uh, we just were waiting on the Hanleys, and they were taking forever. And I wish they were here because I would just chastise them publicly. But uh, we, we were late because Will, I think, was a little bit late in getting his stuff together. And so we're driving up there, and, of course, we get stuck in traffic. Next thing we know, the clock's ticking, and it's like, dude, we're not going to make this flight. I'm on the phone with American Airlines. Our two kids at the time are, are crying, and I'll never forget. It was like the whole car was full of tears. The boys were screaming, and both, I think Courtney was pregnant, or maybe you were both pregnant. Courtney was pregnant, and you were both in the front seats in tears, crying. And it was a messy situation, and we, Will and I were in the back trying to figure it out. And I did my best to bring the wives' comfort. I was trying to remind them over and over again, hey, just remember that this situation is Will's fault. Um, <laughs> there he is. Uh, hey, you made it. Um, we've all had travel plans get thrown off before. I know you know what that feels like. It can be super frustrating. But what's even more frustrating or perhaps disorienting, maybe even discouraging, is when life's plans get thrown off. I think this is part of the human experience. We all know what that feels like. And because it was part of the human experience, life's plans getting thrown off or moved off course or or thwarted, Jesus, who came to to lean into the full range of human experience, he, well, he experienced that too. He and his family. On the first Christmas, in the days that followed, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had their travel plans redirected, thrown off. And through it, I think we observe something really important, really important. And so if you remember nothing else, I want you to remember this as you leave here today, which is that you go nowhere by accident. You go nowhere by accident. God is sovereign over life's itinerary. 
God is sovereign over life's itinerary. His providence, his divine care and working in the events of our lives is, is moving in every detail. And we're going to see it as we read this morning in, in the guidance of Joseph's family to an unexpected place. We're going to see how God weaved all these things together to fulfill prophecies of, of scripture in history. And most gloriously, we're going to see it in Christ's death and resurrection. Friends, God is sovereign over life's itinerary. And this is good news for us. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23 together. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled. This fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And so he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned, warned in another dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we're going to journey through this text, visiting three stops. First, Egypt, then Bethlehem, and then Nazareth. And at each turn, we're going to observe the characters, followed by a prophecy which was fulfilled. And in each of these sections, we're going to observe God's sovereignty over life's itinerary. So here at the first stop, we got uh, Egypt. This is Joseph and his family traveling from Bethlehem to Egypt. Now, as you are uh, imagining this play out, remember that we are now a year or two after Jesus was born. Okay, so the little nativity scene would like us to believe that the wise men and the, the shepherds and everybody was together visiting the baby Jesus. Uh, but we know from the travel log of the wise men that it took them longer to get there. So uh, when we read there in verse 13, when they had departed, that's referring to the wise men from the passage uh, right above. So when the wise men had departed from their visit, which again was, was many months, if not a year or so after Jesus was born, this angel came and appeared to Joseph, as he had done earlier in chapter 1. It's interesting to kind of follow this narrative uh, through the eyes of the angel. He keeps showing up. When? Who does he speak to? What does he say? And in this instance, the angel comes to Joseph, the leader of the family, and tells him that he needs to lead them out of Bethlehem. they got to get out of Dodge. Look at what it says. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. 
and remain there until I tell you. That word there, flee, is fuego, uh, no relation to fire, um, but it is related to the word uh, fugitive, it's from which we get the word fugitive. So essentially the, the angel is saying, you guys are going to be fugitives. You're going to be fugitives on the run. God's word shows up to them just in time, right before the soldiers roll into Bethlehem. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, this is pretty cool, and wouldn't it be nice if when I needed a mix-up in my life, an angel would show up in my living room and tell me what to do? It'd, it'd be a lot easier to, to obey the voice of God if he would show up in the form of an angel. But please remember that this is, this is before God's people had the Holy Spirit. This is before God's people had the, the full, completed Holy Scriptures. You could argue that what we have in the completed Bible and in the indwelling Holy Spirit, which helps us to understand the word of God and to communicate it to one another, that actually what we have is a far better and far clearer word than even Joseph had. So if maybe that thought crossed into your mind, the question is not whether or not God is speaking to us, it's whether or not we are listening and prepared to obey however inconvenient it might be. And obey, Joseph did. You see in verse 14, what does it say? It almost reflects the exact words of the angel to, to emphasize his obedience here. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So this demonstrates a couple things. The first thing that it demonstrates is the severity of the threat. This was a big deal for him to do this, and it demonstrates the severity of the threat to their lives. Tra traveling these roads, especially out of Israel, is, is just not something that you would typically do, and certainly not by night. There's no headlights on a donkey, okay? You got, you got bandits, wild animals, harsh weather conditions. This was, this was an unexpected turn of events indeed for this family. It also demonstrates the seriousness of Joseph's faith. I mean, it's really reminiscent of Abraham, right? When God called him and said, hey, leave this place, this only place that you've ever known, and go to this unfamiliar land. I will be with you. With nothing but their family, some meager supplies, no job, no connections. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a big deal for them to do this. But they go. But, I mean, the, the thing that I can relate it to maybe um, would be, would be God calling you to the mission field, maybe through some, some conversations and just prayers and things that he's, he's leading you. He says, I want you to leave what you know. I want you to leave uh, the grandparents. Uh, the kids aren't going to be around the grandparents. I want you to move. I want you to go to Italy to be with the Browns. I want you to go to Serbia to be with Stoichev. And you're going to live there. You're not going to know anybody. And you're going to lean in and you're going to tell people about me. And I'm going to be with you. And for you to say, sir, yes, sir, and get up and go. Joseph was, was obedient here because he knew that God is sovereign over life's itinerary. <laughs> I mean, he was given this very special child under the most unusual of circumstances. He knew this, and so he went. But the purpose of all of this was uh, about far more than just the immediate concern, the pressing concern of, of Herod coming after Jesus. Don't you know that God is often doing more than what meets the eye, right? He's doing things behind the scenes. He was weaving this together to fulfill a prophecy. 
as I said before, each leg of our journey here is going to end with a fulfilled prophecy. Why Egypt? Well, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And so here we have a prophecy from the Old Testament from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And what's interesting is when you go back and you read the Hosea passage, in that immediate context, God is talking about the nation of Israel. He's, he's talking about the nation of Israel. They were the nation that God had chosen in the old covenant, and they were dear to him, so dear, in fact, that he referred to them as his son. And Hosea was reminding the people of Israel, hey, remember what God did to, to lead you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. He's reminding them of that. Out of, Is, out of Egypt, I called my son. And here we have Matthew saying that this was actually a prophecy about Jesus. That, that was actually about Jesus, ultimately. Matthew is reading his Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. This is a hermeneutical principle, a, a way of reading the Bible. He's, he's going back and he's looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. We would do well to read our Old Testaments that way. This is instructive for us. Now, what's interesting is that it's not, it's not the type of prophecy that maybe we're used to thinking of when we think of prophecy. So prophecy is kind of a large umbrella, and underneath that there's different types of prophecy. The one that we typically think of is predictive prophecy, right? This very specific thing is going to happen in this specific time, in this specific way. Be on the lookout for it, right? A predictive prophecy. Uh, what we have here is typological prophecy, typological prophecy. This is a, a type. Israel was a type of Christ, a type of Christ. Uh, typology is when one person, place, thing, or event in the past symbolically represents a corresponding person, place, thing, or event in the future. You have the type over here in the past and the anti-type in the future. Maybe another way to think about this would be you have the shadow in the past and then the substance in the future. And Matthew learned to read his Bible this way from Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. He said in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 2, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And if you want to see this kind of laid out in a systematic way, just look at the book of Hebrews. What is typology? What is typological prophecy? Maybe this, the way I define it isn't super clear to you. Read the book of Hebrews, and you'll see over and over and over again. You had the, the temple back here. Jesus is the new temple. You had the priests back here. Jesus is the new priest. You had the sacrifices back here. Jesus is the new sacrifice. We don't need the temple. We don't need the priests. We, we don't need the sacrifice. We don't need, need the ethnic nation. We have Christ. It's all about Jesus. Everything is pointing towards driving at Jesus. He is our means of salvation and communion with God. And so the Old Testament, and really all of human history, is this glorious tapestry, 
with all these various threads woven together to paint a picture of Christ. And so God led Joseph and his family to escape Herod and fulfilled the scriptures of old because God is sovereign over life's itinerary. And oftentimes, we run into what feels like in our own lives a meaningless, painful detour that doesn't really make much sense to us. And we're going to read one of those here in our second stop in Bethlehem. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in that region, who were two years old and younger. So here we have this journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Herod's thugs coming to dole out vengeance. Last week, Adam reflected on the various responses of uh, the, the different characters in the story to Jesus' birth, and one was Herod. Herod was this Roman ruler over the, the region um, uh, in, in Jerusalem and in uh, the, where Bethlehem was. He was the ruler over the region where Bethlehem was. That was more clear. And he had heard that, that there was this prophecy about this king that was going to rise to power and basically take over the world. And Herod didn't like that very much because he, he's a king, he's a ruler, he doesn't want his authority compromised. And so like pretty much every superhero villain, he tried to destroy the chosen one before his rise to power. But he didn't know which child it was, and some time had passed since his interaction with the wise men, so he, he sent to, to Bethlehem to kill all of them. All the male children, two years old and younger. We know Herod's murderous activity was unrivaled in that day. We know from ancient histories, even non-Christian histories, like the works of Josephus, that Herod killed wives, family members, entire communities to preserve his power. You can hardly imagine, I mean, you can hardly imagine the, the weeping and the wailing that would have echoed throughout the streets of, of Bethlehem as something around 20 families would have lost their children. And I hope that we don't just breeze over passages like this when we read them. It's just really easy to just fly right through them, right? Like, like if I was there, these soldiers would have kicked down my door and they would have gone into the boy's bedroom. They would have reached down on the bottom bunk and grabbed Bridger into the street and taken his life. The Bible does not dodge the evil of this world. It's a brutally honest book, which I think lends to its historical accuracy. Even around Christmas, it's important that we don't forget the suffering of this world, which is why Jesus came in the first place, to do something about it. It was the only way for him to do something about it, was to enter into it. And here we see that God is not only sovereign over everyday things, he's not only sovereign over unexpected things, he's not only sovereign over miraculous things, God is sovereign over evil things. Sovereign even over Herod's attempt to snuff out the Lord of life and to take the lives of these little children. I don't, have, I don't have time to untangle all of that for you. Um, 
the scriptures very clearly teach that God is never morally culpable, never morally responsible for evil. And yet, he is Lord of all. He declares the end from the beginning. It's like, it's like we're all living this story and he's the author of it. People commit terrible, terrible crimes. Offend and abuse other people and they are responsible, responsible to God for what they do. And yet there is some mysterious sense in which God from eternity past has ordained everything that is to come to pass. And we have to wrestle with that. And we have to see when we are hurt, when we are suffering, when we are abused, that our complaint is not ultimately against other people, that our complaint is not ultimately against circumstances, but our complaint is against God. And we would do well to bring our anger and our sadness to him. Because he's doing something in the midst of it. And we see it here. Herod overplayed his hand. That's what evil does. Evil overplays its hand. Plays right into God's good, wise, and beautiful plan for our lives. Herod was unknowingly fulfilling a prophecy that he was himself actively trying to snuff out. He overplayed his hand. It makes me think of when, when, when the priests of Israel conspired together with the, the Roman authorities who were led and, and, and influenced by Satan himself to snuff out the Lord of life at the cross. They, they planned to do this. They determined to do this. They conspired to do this. And they're responsible before God for the crucifixion of the Son. And yet, it is precisely what God had predetermined to take place in order to bring about your salvation and mine. The most wicked, evil act in human history, the darkest day in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, was at the same time the moment of most glorious and, and, and beautiful love displayed to us. This is what theologians would call concurrence. The way that God can, can weave together the activities and actions of human beings to bring about his purposes. And so Herod brought about the fulfillment of this prop, prophecy in Jeremiah. Look at it. This, is, this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 15. That whole section in Jeremiah is a messianic section. It's talking about this new covenant that's going to break onto the scene. Covenant is just this relationship that God enters into with people, this binding, uh, unbreakable relationship that God enters into with people. And so this new covenant is going to come on the scene where God's going to enter into a new way of relating to human beings. But in order for them to get there, they have to go through deportation, captivity, and death. And so Rachel, who represented the nation of Israel, will weep because many will die through captivity and deportation. But on the other side of that, what's going to take place in history is the new covenant. And a new kingdom is going to come onto the scene through the Messiah. God is sovereign over life's itinerary. 
Which brings us to our third stop in this journey here. Nazareth, the third and final section. Here we move from Egypt to Nazareth, from down in Egypt up to Nazareth. We're focusing on Joseph's family now, kind of bouncing back and forth here like a movie. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. So this is now the fourth time, the fourth time that the angel has appeared to Joseph. I'm kind of putting myself in his shoes, and I'm imagining that the first time the angel showed up, he was like, Wah! A ghost! And then maybe the second time, he was like, Whoa! Stop doing that! And then the third and fourth time, he's probably like, what do you want from me now? Just tell me where to go. And here the angel comes and says, rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Egypt. It's safe now. Herod has died. Now he tells him to go to Israel, which is kind of a broad direction. And then he appears again in verse 21 and tells him, uh, don't go to Judea, go to Galilee. And we know from verse 23 and the rest of the gospel, they ultimately settle in this little small town in Galilee called Nazareth. That's, that's where Jesus would grow up. Now, it probably wouldn't have been Joseph's first choice of where to go. Um, it wasn't the greatest of towns. Uh, in fact, uh, Nazareth was kind of ill-favored. It was kind of a podunk little town. Um, you could think of it as being like from a little holler in Appalachia. It was a other side of the tracks type of place. It was like the hood. This is where Jesus grew up. But again, God works in mysterious ways. This is precisely where he wanted his son to grow up. In this rough spot of Nazareth. Why? Why Nazareth? Well, again, we close with another prophecy being fulfilled. Verse 23, look at it. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he, that's Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. In order to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, this is odd. Pay attention here. P pay attention. The words are different than the last few prophecies. We, we don't have a direct quotation. We don't have a direct quotation. We don't have a specific individual prophet. We don't have a direct reference. In fact, he speaks of the prophets generally. As if the, the prophets generally spoke about the Messiah being a Nazarene. What's this about? This is strange because when you, you go through your Old Testament, you're not going to find any direct uh, prophecy that, that the Christ would be a Nazarene. You're not going to see that there. So what is this all about? And the first fulfillment, verse 15, was to demonstrate that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Our connecting point with God. The second fulfillment, verse 18, was meant to demonstrate that a new covenant and a new kingdom is about to break through on the other side of all this death and deportation. But why Nazareth? Especially when it doesn't have direct uh, quotation out of the Old Testament. What is Matthew doing here? And here's where I think this sweeping story comes home. Here's where this grand narrative becomes deeply personal. If the first two fulfillments show off the wisdom and power of God's sovereign plan, this last one shows off his kindness and his compassion. 
Let me read some background here from scholar D.A. Carson. We know from both biblical and extra-biblical sources that Nazareth was a despised place. In John 1.46, we read the sentiment of the day, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. But it was here that Jesus grew up. Not Jesus the Bethlehemite with all its royal undertones, but Jesus the Nazarene with all the disgrace and sneer. When Christians were later referred to in Acts as the Nazarene sect, that expression was meant to hurt. It was an insult. First century readers would have quickly caught Matthew's point. He's not saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that he would grow up in Nazareth. He's saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. A theme picked up on over and over and over again in Matthew. God's chosen Messiah, his only begotten son, the second member of the divine trinity, would condescend heaven move into the human neighborhood, and grow up in a rough part of town. His closest friends were not the elites. They were not the elites. They were not the religious elites. But the sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, of which Matthew was one, and the blue-collar fishermen. Perhaps, friends, this tells us something about God's heart. Where he came from tells us who he came for. Where Jesus came from tells us who he came for. He was the friend of sinners and outcasts. Like you and me. Listen, if you were trying to make up a religious fable in hopes that people would come to believe it, you don't write it this way especially not in this day and age. You wouldn't have him come from Nazareth. This can only be explained by the fact that God is sovereign over life's itinerary, over the the birth and childhood of his son, over the prophecies and types and shadows and fulfillments, and over your life and your checkered past. And all of it is woven together to declare to the world and to your heart this morning That he loves you. God loves you. And he came for you. He worked all this together because he wanted you in his family. Do you see his heart for you there? This is why he came. And there was perhaps one more stop, which was from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Jesus avoided the death doled out by Herod on that day, but he did come to die. And he would travel through his life, he would love people, he would show them who he really is, and then he would be abused, injustice would take shape, and he would be crucified on a Roman cross. His blood would be shed. He would receive the wrath of God for you and for me. And then from that hill in Jerusalem down to the grave, 
but he didn't stay there, right? His itinerary took him out three days later in resurrection life. And then he went from, from the countryside of Jerusalem to heaven, from where he reigns now, working in and through all things to bring about his own glory and to reveal more of his heart to you. And then his messengers took that word from Jerusalem to, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Richmond, to this morning. You're hearing it now. And one day, he's going to come back from heaven down to earth. And he's going to remake all this mess. And all the weeping in Rama will be gone. Rachel will cry no more. And the people of God will enjoy the beauty of the recreated earth in one another's presence, in the presence of their King Jesus forever. And that's where our, our itinerary is headed, friends. So how do we apply this? I would just encourage you, I know this maybe isn't a really super clear action step, but would encourage you to see and to savor God's sovereignty over your life. To, to see and to savor God's sovereignty over your life. N nothing takes place in your life by accident. There, there's no happenstance, there's no chance. God is doing something. He's doing something. Would you see and interpret your life in that way? We see it in the gospel, we see it in the birth of Christ, and it's true of our own lives. God is sovereign. See it, savor it, enjoy it, because God is good, and he knows what's best for you. One way that you can do this, it's kind of the end of the year. We did this the other night at dinner with a few friends. Uh, would just encourage you to reflect upon maybe something that was hard or sad or dark from your last year of life. Think about it, call it to mind, speak it, and then reflect upon the good that has come out of it, the good that God has brought out of this hard thing from your last year. What's, what's one thing that's been hard from this last year, and what's a way that you see God's hand working in the midst of it to, to reveal more of his heart to you, to draw you closer to himself? Because everything that God is doing, friends, Everything that he's doing is to magnify his son. That's, that's, that is the point of everything, is the glorification of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where do you see him? Where do you see him at work in your heart, in your life, in your holiday, in your relationships, in your family? What is Jesus doing? Where's Jesus? Let's see and savor God's sovereignty over our lives and see that it's all driving at and pointing at his son who loves us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. We have given you good reason to recoil away from us, to turn away from us, and yet you condescend and you draw close. And so I pray for each one of us this morning 
that in a special way, perhaps in a new way, perhaps for the first time, would you communicate your love? I pray that these words would not just go in one ear and out the other, running over cold, calloused hearts, but that you would pierce our hearts and help us to see that you're sovereign over everything, even the hard stuff. And it's all for the purpose of giving us more of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in control and that you care about us. We love you. Thanks for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.